0: See how many things they are accusing you of. But still Jesus made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner from the people whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the rebels who'd committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to get Pilate to release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Do you see, as we re-enter the story of Mark, do you see what I mean? It feels a lot like Jesus is very passive. Jesus does nothing. And everything is swirling around him. I mean, just look... At the end of verse 1, the three verbs at the end of verse 1, just get a feel of this. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over. Do you see it? Bound, led away, handed over. Jesus is being passed around like a lump of meat. Jesus is not in control. Jesus has got it. It's just all happening to him. There's nothing he can do. There's no way he can stop it. It's just happening. He's, he's pinned to the roller coaster and he's heading for death. Other people are calling the shots. But what we're going to do this afternoon is, as we look at this closely, I want to show you something. I've got a phrase I want you to remember. Okay, this is easy this afternoon. This is all I want you to remember. And as you go into this week, I want you to remember This phrase. Because it will help you to understand the magnificence of your King Jesus. Here is the statement, here's the phrase. As Jesus does nothing, he does everything. So I want to try and show you this afternoon. As Jesus stands there, being bound and led away and handed over, as he's flogged and beaten and crucified, as all that stuff is happening, as Jesus does nothing, Actually, he's doing everything. He's a magnificent king. So that's where we're heading. And we're going to look at these two points. We're going to look at this idea of Jesus doing nothing. We're going to look at this idea of Jesus being passive. And then we're going to look at the idea of Jesus doing everything. Okay? So here's the, here's the first thing then. Um, those are the two big points. And Jesus does nothing. He is like a lamb being led to the slaughter. He is led like a lamb to the slaughter. That's what's happening in this story. If you see someone, uh, if if you know anything, if you know much about the the Bible, you'll know that when someone or something is bound, often that means they're about to be sacrificed. There's a very famous story of Abraham. Abraham was a a man in the Bible, and uh, he had a son called Isaac. And Abraham was pretty old, and his son Isaac was pretty young. And uh, one day God told Abraham, and Abraham really loved his son Isaac, and Isaac was very, very precious to him. And God told Abraham that he was to sacrifice his son Isaac. And it says in Genesis 22 that Abraham bound Isaac and placed him on the altar. And then as you read through the sacrificial system, the sacrifices are bound before they are slaughtered. Jesus is being bound like a sacrifice. He is being tied up, led away, handed over like a lamb to the slaughter. He's heading over for death. And I want to, sh- we're going to zoom in now and we really want to get into the detail of this, okay? What is, who is it who is doing the stuff to him. There are three groups of people doing stuff to Jesus in this passage. Let's check them out. Let's see what's going on. It's important for us to understand this. Who is doing what to Jesus? The first group is you've got the religious leaders, the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin. That's like the the, the Jewish religious elite, the kind of ruling class in the religious world. And you can see they're pretty... Keen to get on with stuff we told it's early in the morning they've been questioning jesus interrogating jesus all night they'd arrested him the previous night they took him into their court the jewish court the sanhedrin they've been questioning him interrogating him falsely accusing him spitting on him punching him all night and very early in the morning you see they, they waste no time there's something they want to get on with they want to get on with this they get together and they make their plans do you see it They've got their plans. They know exactly what they want to do. They've got their plan and their plan is crystal clear. They want to kill this man. They want to get rid of him. It was a plan, if you trace it back, you can go right back to Mark chapter 3 where we're first told they started planning to kill Jesus. Right the way through Mark's gospel, there's been this hostility towards Jesus and that's the first of these groups. They're the hostility group. They are hostile to Jesus, wanting to kill him. Why? Well, because they feel deeply threatened by Jesus. It's always been the same. Jesus, There's you know, nothing new. Jesus has always caused people to feel threatened and therefore made people hostile. People have always been hostile to Jesus. Because he's threatening. Jesus is somehow very offensive to the human heart. And we know why. You can see it in this passage, why. Just jump over to um, verse 10. Now we get a glimpse into why they're so hostile. This is why they want to kill him. Pilate's not stupid. He knows it was out of self-interest the chief priests had handed Jesus over to them. So their hostility is driven by their self-interest. You see, here's the deal, right? Jesus is not interested in our self-interest. Jesus drives a coach and horses through our self-interest. That's his gospel. When he comes to preach this message, he says things like, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny self Uh -uh. by self. No more self. You see, that's a problem, right? For a culture that loves self. Self-esteem, self-image, self-worth, self self interest you see we love self and when jesus comes along and says no no self no self no self do you see why it threatens do you see why these guys are slightly offended by jesus and they want to get rid of him because he's threatening their self interests? this is right jesus does not come and appeal to our self-interest he does not come and say hello i have 10 reasons Why it is in your interests for you to follow me. Here are my top ten reasons. Jesus never says that. You see, Jesus is not about appealing. He's not some advertising guru who comes with his catchy slogan that says, Come follow me and I'll make everything happy. No, he says, Come follow me and die. Come follow me and deny yourself. You see, that's why they don't like it. We've seen that right the way through, Mark. So they make their plans. They're hostile. Anyone who loves themselves will be hostile to Jesus. It's that simple. If you love yourself, let's face it, we all do. If you love yourself, you will find there is something in your heart which is hostile to Jesus because unless you haven't understood him properly. Because Jesus tells us to deny self and these Pharisees, these religious, these chief priests, sorry, they are power hungry. They love their system. They love the control they have. It works for them. It's in their self-interest. And Jesus says, ah, ah. So they make their plan. Oh, but they've got a problem. You see, they make their plan, but here's the problem. They've got a plan, but they've got no power to carry out their plan. Their plan is they're going to kill Jesus. We're going to kill Jesus. We agree. Yes, let's kill Jesus. Ah, here's a problem. We can't. Because we're not allowed to do that. Because we're not in charge in this place. They have plans without power. Only the Romans, you see the Romans are ruling, not the Jews. The Jews aren't ruling in Jerusalem. The Romans are ruling. Only the Romans have the power. So you've got these chief priests who've got a plan but got no power. That's annoying, right? You ever been in a situation where you've got a plan but not the power? Most of my plans, I have, got, I have loads of plans. I have some great plans. But I don't have the power to make them happen. And the powerlessness of humanity is really frustrating. Just as a, a moment of lightness, you must have seen the video this week of the. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, The uh, the expert on the BBC who was talking about the relationship between South Korea and North Korea, serious, super serious in his tie, sitting there, super serious and then the door opens and his three-year-old daughter comes running in and uh, she's dancing around behind him and he doesn't take his eyes off the camera but he's going like this. Uh, He doesn't have the power to stop her and then his one, well, like it looks about six months old, comes in in its little trucky thing, <laughs> shrugging in the background, and then the best bit is, I don't know whether it's the, and his wife or a nanny or someone, just comes legging it in, going ah, grabs the baby, grabs the thing, pushes them out the door all the time, going like this, so she won't be seen. <laughs> anyway, humanity, we, we love to have this appearance of being in control, and this bloke just was like. I apologise, I apologise. He never once looked round because he had to give this appearance of being in control. These guys, they think they have power, they have no power, no power. Humanity's very powerless but they're hostile without power. So if their plan's going to get any further, they've got to go to the person who's got the power and the power lies with Pilate. He's the Roman ruler. He's the one who has the power to put people to death. So they go to see the... Second main protagonist in the story, they go to Pilate. Now look, Pilate's not Jewish. He's not even close to Jewish. He's Roman. And the Roman Empire extended over huge areas and over Jerusalem. And Pilate's job basically was to keep Jerusalem peaceful. Just keep them happy. We don't want trouble. Just keep them happy. But he has the power. So the chief priests go to see them. But in Pilate, we see quite a different attitude, don't we? Quite different to the chief priests. He's not vicious and hostile to Jesus. In fact, in Pilate, we see an, just an apathy. He just seems particularly disinterested. I mean, look, look, look what he says. First question, verse 2. Are you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. Now look, it's a bit of a joke of a question, isn't it? Come on, think. Who's he looking at? He's looking at a 33-year-old man who has spent the night being interrogated and beaten. He's looking at a man who is utterly powerless. Do you not think there was a tone, a a slight tone of mockery in Pilate's question? Are you the king of the Jews? Serious? Serious? Is this seriously what him? It, it just seems so ridiculous. He's so unimpressed. I mean, this man is hardly a threat to the Roman Empire. One little man covered in blood. Huh. This is a joke. Pilate's completely unimpressed. Jesus answers, Pilate, you have said so. That isn't quite, I don't think that's quite as enigmatic as it sounds. I think he's literally just saying, yes, that is, that is, you, you've said it. He's saying, yes, that's right, I am. And Pilate's just unimpressed. He's unexcited. The chief priests, they keep pressing, verse 3, they're desperate. We've got to kill him, we've got to kill him. Just imagine Pilate like, what are you talking about? This man is an irrelevancy. There's just nothing here he's nothing. Why would I be bothered about that? Pilate has no interest in Jesus. He has no interest in killing Jesus. He just waste of the time. Then Pilate sees a way out of the predicament he's in. There is a way out for Pilate. And at this point we're introduced to what must be one of the most bizarre customs in any judicial system in the world. It was the custom at that time when they would just randomly release a guilty prisoner. <laughs> what kind of a system's that? But it seems to be, my guess is, that it was a way of the Romans keeping the Jews happy. Fine, once a year you can choose a prisoner, we'll set them free and everyone will be happy. Let's keep the peace, let's keep the peace, let's not have a big fight, let's just be nice. And Pilate thinks, ah, yes, okay, the crowd come to Pilate um, in verse 8 and they came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. The other prisoner who's kind of on trial that day and who's heading for the cross is a man called Barabbas. He's a murderer. So Pilate thinks, okay, this is perfect. I'll just say to the crowd, okay, fine, I'll release one of the prisoners. Do you want me to release you, king of the Jews? He's clearly expecting them to say, yes, release Jesus. I mean, when it comes... I mean, Jesus Jesus might have irritated some people, but compared to Barabbas, a murderer, you know, this is is a pretty straightforward decision. And so Pilate seems to think this is a way out of a tricky spot, and yet it backfires spectacularly. Because the crowd want Barabbas. The crowd want Barabbas. Pilate tries to protest... Look at him in verse 12. What should I do then with the one you call king of the Jews? Crucify him, they said. Look at verse 14. Why? What crime has he committed? Why do you want me to kill this man? Can't you feel in Pilate that sort of, just this bemused, confused attitude and apathy. But then it really comes down to, it in verse 15, wanting to satisfy the crowd. There it is. That's what really motivates him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Peter, uh, Pilate released Barabbas to them. You see, Pilate, at the end of the day, he just wants an easy life. He wants a peaceful life. Look, fine. Not that bothered about Jesus. Don't care that much about him. But if it's that big a deal, if we're going to have a big fight about this, just take him and kill him. That's fine. So you've got the hostile Jewish leaders. You've got Pilate who's just apathetic and just seems to want a peaceful life, peaceful life. Let's not be unkind. And then the third group is is the crowd um, where we see the turning tide of popular opinion. And it is just staggering. There's the hostility of their leaders. There's the apathy of Pilate. But look at the crowd we see the incredible power of public opinion. It is like a tidal wave crashing through Jerusalem. The crowds, the crowds would have been huge in Jerusalem. They'd have come from all over the place. For many of them, my guess is they knew very little about Jesus, really. They'd probably heard about him. There's this bloke called Jesus who's going around doing miracles. But for most of them, they would never really even have heard of him. And it doesn't take much for them to be whipped up by the chief priests, and suddenly for the public opinion just to turn against Jesus. It's a powerful thing. A crowd. And they turn in mass against Jesus. If everybody around you believes a certain thing, it's hard to believe something different. You know that, don't you? They did some... um, Great experiments on this, I, and I'm, I haven't got the details. I should have, I should have written the details down. Uh, they did some experiments on this, where they got a group of people, ten people, in a room, and they asked them a question. They asked them. They showed them three lines, one of them which was much shorter than the others. They said, "Which is the shortest line?" Nine of them had been told to choose one of the longer, the wrong answer. So they all went around and said, yeah, "It's C, it's C," and the, the other ones like. Oh, and the statistics for those who just went with the crowd are amazing. It's a fascinating experiment. You should look it up later. But that whole sense of the power of public opinion. Jesus has got no one with him. All his friends have deserted him. He's absolutely alone. And now the crowd has turned. And boy, have they turned. Have you ever thought what it would be look like to stand and look out over a vast crowd and see all of them, Looking at you and screaming, Crucify him. Difficult to say that without a real anger in your voice. Do you see how Jesus is on this roller coaster? He's absolutely passive, there's nothing he can do. The hostility of the chief priest, the apathy of Pilate, and the turning tide of the crowd it's like everything is running out of control for Jesus. Jesus is led like a lamb to the slaughter. And eventually he's handed over, he's flogged and handed over to be crucified. But we need to see more here. We need to see more. We need to see that as Jesus does nothing, actually he does everything. And I want to show you the second main point. If the first thing is he's led like a lamb to the slaughter, the second thing is he goes as a king to his throne. That's what's really happening here. Let me show you what I mean do you remember the chief priest had made a plan? Got a plan. Got no power. Got a plan. Actually, what's happening here is God's plan. This is God's plan. This is what God had always said would happen. Not just vaguely, oh yeah, one day it's gonna, something, something's going to happen. Not like that ridiculous, uh, whatever those sayings of that bloke who make up things. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> God's plan is so specific. Look what he said. Look what he said. Isaiah 53 says this. In the book of Isaiah, right, God says there's going to be a king. There's going to be a king. He's going to be powerful. He's going to be powerful. And then suddenly in 53, chapter 53, he's going to suffer. Right? Look at this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. Do you not think, right, as Jesus stood there, and as Pilate, as they're falsely accusing him, Pilate saying to him, "Why won't you answer?" Do you not think that in Jesus' head, through his head was going, as a sheep before his shearers of silence, so he did not open his mouth. That's me. That's me. As Jesus does nothing, he's doing everything. As Jesus does nothing, he is fulfilling the very plan of God. You see, why? Why would he suffer? Look, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. This was the plan. The plan is that this king would come and suffer and die. It's God's plan. And not only is it God's plan, you can also see from Jesus' words... That Jesus is in control. Just go back with me um, a few pages in Mark um, to Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Jesus then began to teach them, that's his disciples, that the Son of Man that's him, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law. He must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, right? He's told them. Flick over one page to Mark chapter 10 verse 32. Look how clear this is. Jesus knows. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. The disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise. Do you see how specific he is? I know how it's going to happen. Chief priests are going to condemn me. They're going to hand me over to the Gentiles. They will spit on me and flog me. They will kill me and then I'll rise again. Do you not see? Jesus, as he does nothing, he's doing everything. He is utterly and absolutely in control of everything that's happening. thirdly, and perhaps most wonderfully, and if you're thinking, "What? Well, I still don't get it, fine, okay, it was God's plan Jesus' words, but why on earth? What sort of a plan is this? Finally, uh, look at the visual aid. In this passage, clear as day, clear as you could possibly make it, that Jesus knows what he's doing. Let's go back to this man Barabbas. Imagine Barabbas waking up that morning. My guess is he didn't wake up. My guess is he probably hadn't slept. He knows that today is the day he's going to die. He's a guilty man, a violent man. He knows he's going to die. He's in his cell and he begins to hear an uproar outside and he can hear the crowd shouting and chanting. And as he listens, he begins to hear and it sounds like they're saying his name. What is going on? And and Barabbas is grabbed and he's led out of the cell and he's told, Barabbas, you're going free. Can you not imagine Barabbas saying, what? But I'm a guilty man. Maybe he didn't hang around. Maybe he legged there. But Barabbas goes free. The guilty man goes free. The innocent man goes to a cross. And how can you not see that at the cross Jesus died instead of Barabbas. It was Barabbas' cross. It should have been Barabbas nailed there. And yet Jesus took his place. The nails that had Barabbas' name on them were nailed through the hands of Jesus. Jesus takes the cross that Barabbas deserved. And Barabbas goes free. There it is. You want to understand why Jesus died? Jesus died so that guilty people go free. It's that simple. Jesus died so that people like you and me can go free. He stood in our place. He took our nails. The nails that should have been for me. Because of my sin, my guilt, my failure. Jesus, they were driven through his hands. He dies, I go free. As Jesus does nothing in Mark 15, he does everything. Barabbas goes free. I wonder if you can see it. And this afternoon, I I wonder if you can say... He did it for me. I want you to imagine finding Barabbas. You know, perhaps on his deathbed. Perhaps he's lived his life. You say to him, Barabbas, what happened on that day? And he says he died for me. He died in my place. Should have been me. Is that your test is that your testimony? Have you understood that although you deserve death, there is a king? who went to a cross to save you. And that's why in Mark's Gospel, what happens as Jesus goes to the cross, is yes, he is a lamb led to the slaughter, but actually you discover he is a king going to his throne. And from the cross, Jesus is proclaimed to be the king of the Jews. Jesus is the king who is lifted up, enthroned as the saviour of the world. So as we finish, I, let's, let's land this. I, I, I want... My first big question for you is, do you know he did it for you? If that isn't you this afternoon, I want you to understand, today, right now, he says, I did it for you, trust me, trust me, even now. Come to Jesus, say, Jesus, will you take my place? You set me free. All of your guilt, all of your sin, paid for, you go free. And if you are trusting him, then I want you to learn from this, that we need to hold our nerve. Jesus held his nerve. And there will be times when our world feels very hostile. People will hate Jesus. And if we claim we follow him, people will hate us too. Will you hold your nerve when the world is hostile? People will be apathetic. Have you never felt the apathy of our culture? People just don't care. I try and tell them about Jesus. Like, Jesus, what a joke. What are you talking about? Hold your nerve. And when the tide of public opinion feels like it's turning and it feels like there is increasing people against Jesus, people who don't even seem to know that much, but they're just against him. We're just against him. We just don't like him because everyone, everyone does this. Will you hold your nerve and will you stand? Because we have a king who, as he does nothing, does everything. We're going to pray together. And um, what I'd love us to do is, is in some way to uh, respond to what we've just heard. Um, I, I'd love you to, now on your tables, uh, not tables, chairs. On your chairs, there's a piece of paper. Uh, I think. Um, If you came in near the back, there may not be. But you may be able to find a piece of paper or something. I'd love you to find a pen and a piece of paper. Um, And I think it would be an extraordinary thing if... I think it would be an extraordinary thing if we could see Jesus taking our place and find ourselves completely not bothered. That would be strange. And what I want us to do is I'd love you to um, take the piece of paper. I'd love you to write something. We've done this a few times before, but perhaps you want to write. It Maybe you just want to write a prayer. Or it may be that you want to write some poetry or a a lyric of a song or, or something to express thanks, to express worship of a king who would go and take your place. A king who seems so passive and yet was so in control. And perhaps even today you feel like you're on that roller coaster. you feel you're pinned in, you feel like everything's out of control. Will you lift your eyes to see there is a king who knows? There's a king who died for you. So just take a few minutes. And maybe you just want to sit and pray quietly. That's fine. But actually, I want us to respond. I want us to engage with our hearts. Um, So take a moment. Write something. Use the time however you want. But we can take a few minutes, and then we'll come back and sing to finish.